0: Beware of us kicking off the poinsettias. Those of you who are a little more particular also have to watch out for the prayer shawl I'm going to be wearing to make sure it's even. I do this, those of you who don't know, um, a few years ago we, we intentionally kind of engaged with the question of, of the liturgy that are in tr- Yeah, exactly. Let me know. It's pretty good. All right. So I know some of you fixated the whole service if I don't get that right. Um... Uh, because a few years ago we really focused some attention on what are some of the church liturgies that can connect us to the church around the world, different denominations and different um, groups of Christians that gather. And obviously Christmas and Easter are two times when no matter what part of Christianity you're in, we're all in agreement, this matters. Like this is the, this is the deal right here. If you, if you don't agree that Christ coming and living as a human and dying as a servant, a horrible death, on a cross and being raised from the grave, if you don't think that changes everything, then I submit you're not a Christian. You may be think doing other things, but if that's, that, that means you've missed the boat somewhere um, as, as, if you're aiming for Christianity. so um, And so certain things, different denominations do different things. Some light candles, some don't. Normally in Baptist churches, you don't often see that. Sometimes you do. You definitely don't see um, the shawl thing here, but, but the reminder to connect us to all the believers everywhere right now. And there are believers around the world in great struggle and great suffering. Um, anywhere you see um, struggle and suffer, like in Israel, like in Ukraine right now, there are Christians on the ground trying to serve those people in the name of Jesus Christ as people are going through those difficulties. And we need to remember that. That's not going to be reported in the news, but it's the truth. There are people there right now seeking to help those. And so um, just to encourage us, to remind us that, that we are part of the church and as we dive into this type of a, a period, it's a good reminder. Um, so as we've wrapped up 1 Samuel, which is always an amazing, feels like an amazing accomplishment when we have studied a book from beginning to ending and, and dug through it. Um, one of the ways we do things here is we teach in a way it's called expository teaching, meaning we start with the passage and then we, we talk about whatever the passage talks about. And then that's, we try to unwrap whatever the cosmic truths are there. It's also called exegetical teaching, meaning... We go without preconce- We try to go without preconceived notions and just take what's there. And obviously, to do that well takes time. Um, you will remember, I, you know, we've gone for over a year um, in First Samuel and unpacking that. Well, the next book we're going to tackle is the book of Luke. And in fact, today we're starting in Luke. And I'm excited about this for a couple of reasons. One, I've never talked through the book of Luke. Um, I've taught through Matthew, Mark, and John, but I've never taught through Luke, and so I'm excited to do so to get the opportunity to to dive into this gospel. I'm encouraged, part of why I wanted to pick it for us is that Luke, among books in the Bible, is one of the easier ones for us because it's more, a little bit, a little bit more Western in its thinking um, than most of the books are. Um, and so, as we go through it, for example, we're gonna, Luke is going to anchor his gospel in a historical context. We really like that. Uh, we want to know when something happened and exactly when it happened, and we want to know what the, what the things going on around it was. As Westerners, we like to set our watch by things, we like to know where it fits on the calendar. Um, we like that kind of stuff. We like numbers, we like photographs, we like data. So that's why we have such a hard time with example, I don't know, 1 Samuel, um, which is not written at all that way, which is so difficult for us. Um, And so I thought it would be also a little gentle for us to take this book after 1 Samuel. Um, So I'm encouraged to do that. Um, Now, I will just give you the heads up. I have no idea at this point. Um, The Holy Spirit, Lord willing, will lead us through the book of Luke. Here's what I do know is that from February 2018, if my numbers are right, from February 2018 until December 22nd, 2019, we studied the book of John. Now, those dates feel a little wrong to me, but I think that's, that's what we've got on the, on the website. So I've got to go with that because I can't trust my intuition. So, so February 2018 to December 29, so almost two years that we were studying the book of John, if that's correct. Now, John has 15,635 English words in the English New Testament, and we spent about two years on it. Luke has 19,482 words in it in the English New Testament. So I, I hope you love Luke. <laughs> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the basics. Usually what I do first thing when I get to a book is we unpack the basics. Um, but because we're in Advent, I'm going to skip some of the basics and come back to that in the new year when we reconnect with Luke, which will be fine. Um, So these first, who Luke is and what this introduction means, we're going to come back and look at it. These first four verses, which are just one sentence, but let me read them to you. Um, Chapter one, book of Luke, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Again, there's one sentence. Welcome to Luke's writing. We'll come back again to go into this, but notice already you have Luke saying from the very beginning, I am intentionally creating an orderly account of what's happened. I don't know if this is meant to be a criticism on Mark, but he's like, I'm going to do it differently than Mark did it. I'm going with an order." Um, in a certain order. We'll come back to that. I think, really, my opinion is after, after a little research here, I think bo- possibly at least partially Luke and Acts, which was also written by Luke, um, that Luke and Acts were written down, compiled largely to help defend early Christians, maybe particularly Paul, when they faced Roman courts. That these were documents that could be handed to Roman To Roman magistrates and leaders, and maybe even Jewish magistrates and leaders, and saying, This is what this is about. This is what these people are teaching. All these things are being claimed about them that they're rabble rousers, they're they're rebels, they're causing problems, but that's not true. This is actually what's being taught. I think there's a good reason to believe that. Again, we'll discuss those and other theories, um, and for example, who Theophilus might be um, in the spring. In fact, um, let's look at how specific and historical Luke intended to be. My goal is that by the time we're done with chapter 2, we will be able to nail down with some level of hope what month and maybe what year Jesus was born. Um, I think John, Luke is going to give us enough information to do that. And so that's the challenge. We should cue the Scooby-Doo music right now, right? This is the, or the, or the uh, Sherlock Holmes music. Let The the game is afoot. Let the mystery begin. Let's see if we can accomplish this. Many have tried. let me start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. By the way, Zechariah means he who remembers Yahweh. Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So again, notice Luke immediately anchors this in a historical timeline. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, we have a pretty good idea of when Herod was king of Judea. Herod was king of Judea sometime from around 37 B.C. to about... 4 B.C. to uh, 1 A.D. There's about a five-year gap that we don't know exactly when his reign ended. So it's irritating to us already. We like to know when things start and finish, but it's not like we're always perfect about that nowadays either. But that's, that's, that's what we got. So somewhere between 4 B.C. and 1 A.D. is when Herod died and stopped ruling Judea. So who was he? Now we've unpacked who Herod was in the past in quite a bit of detail when we talked through, for example, Daniel. But generally speaking, uh, Herod was a hated Roman appointment. He was part Jewish, um, but he was not a very good Jew. He was What he was was a very good Roman. He tried to be a very good Roman, um, though he was Jewish, and he was in charge of this. He was raised from childhood to be a sociopathic nightmare. And boy, did he excel at it. He had many amazing. He also had many amazing things that he built under while he was in charge of Judea, which is why he's called Herod the Great. No one calls him Herod the Good. Um, he was Herod the awful, terrible, nasty. But he also did some pretty amazing things, or he at least had some pretty amazing things done. Here's some examples. He had Masada built. A hilltop fortress on the top of a mountain that was meant to house a thousand soldiers for ten years without them having to leave. It's amazing, amazing accomplishment to consider that he pulled that off all the way back then. The largest harbor <coughs> um, uh, of Caesarea Maritime, the largest harbor on the Mediterranean Sea at the time it was built, bigger than the Roman ones. This one was even bigger. This was the largest one at one point. His personal palace, which was right by Bethlehem, called the Herodium and which they think they found his body just recently there. Um, it had been lost for a long time. His palace in Jerusalem, um, in the northern part of Jerusalem, in the flat country in, in Jerusalem, where um, this was very popular property, and yet he had it all cleared and had himself a palace built in the middle of it. And, of course, his most famous thing that he was in charge of having constructed, the temple also in Jerusalem, the Grand Temple, considered one of the great wonders of this era. People came from all over the Roman Empire to admire the work that Herod had been in charge of. And that was his goal in life, was to impress Roman minds. It was for Romans to be impressed in him, to give him approval. That's exactly what he wanted. It was his main motivator. What a bummer that most of these things were later destroyed by those very same Romans. Um, if you live by the Romans, you die by the Romans. And so he, he got their popularity, but as soon as he was no longer popular, they came in and leveled uh, much of what he had done. So there you have that understanding. That's the person during this era, during that period of time from 37 BC to 1 AD, somewhere in there, this, Jesus, this, this story is going to begin. Now, we also know the story begins when Zechariah, who was in the house of Abijah, was serving in the temple. Now, what's supposed to happen... Okay, what's supposed to happen, because we're a good Jewish audience, is we hear that and we go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But what really happens is, we read it and our mind goes blank when a name appears, right? There was this guy named, <laughs> and he was from the house of, <laughs> and that's all our brain does, right? We got nothing. Like, I, I, just, I just heard there was a someone and he was from something, and that's, that's as much as my brain knows. So let me help you out here. Um, I have the luxury of getting to research this kind of stuff so I can share it with you. If you go all the way back to 1 Chronicles 24, it turns out we're getting a lot of information right here. A whole lot of information. So I'm going to go back. Aaron, the, the, the brother of Moses, um, Aaron had four sons. He, two of them died without children because God struck them dead. In fact, what these sons of Aaron were doing who were struck dead was exactly what Zechariah is doing here in this passage. They were lighting the incense altar. So God was very specific. This is how you remember we talked about a lot about this. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and throw the picture up of the, of the internal of the temple, if you could grab that for me. So if you remember, this is the, we studied this in detail when we talked about the tabernacle with Samuel is that there's these items in this room, this 35 by 50, 30 by 15 room, and under the tabernacle, and later it's a temple that's been built, huge, the huge Herod's temple built around it, but the, the floor plan is essentially the same at this point, at this location, so that you've got um, the, the menorah, you've got the table of the showbread, and you've got the altar of the incense, and so um, what happened is, uh, Aaron's sons, two of his sons, got is very particular, hey, I am a holy, righteous God, and it is super dangerous for me to live in your midst, because you're not. I am like uranium in your midst. You get too close, and my holiness will destroy you, because humans aren't holy like I am. So in order for me to be able to live in your midst, which is what I want, and what you want, I'm going to have to set up certain guidelines, certain boundaries, certain rules for what keeps you safe from my holiness and so when you're praying to me one of the ways you're going to do this is with this um, incense altar so we're going to put this incense altar you're going to do it exactly this way at exactly this time and it lasted perfectly until just about the first time when Aaron's son said you know what I mean those are some pretty good guidelines but we think we've got a way to do it better so they come in and they do it in what they think is a new and improved way and they are struck dead for their trouble So that's two of Aaron's sons. Now, he has two other sons. The other two, Eleazar and Ithamar, had 24 sons altogether. Okay? To combine, they had 24 sons. These would serve for one week in rotation about every six months in the temple, or the tabernacle at that time, outside of the three big feasts. Three big feasts. That's like you know fireworks here. It's all hands on deck. Listen, you, everybody's got to show up and work on those days. It's Easter. Everybody's got to show up and work. Same sort of thing. That's what those were. But the rest of the year, who's going to serve and do all the nasty jobs necessary to take care of the temple or the tabernacle? Well, it's going to be one of the descendants, the descendants of one of these brothers. So in 1 Chronicles 24, we actually get them casting lots to decide what order they serve. And Abijah is chosen eighth which almost certainly means, can't know with certainty on any of this kind of stuff, but it seems most likely that Abijah's family would have served from by our calendar sometime from the end of June to the middle of July. Or, because it's twice a year, sometime from the end of December to the beginning of January. That that's when the family of Abijah would have served. So again, Herod, 37 to 1, Abijah, just the end of the middle of July, Zechariah was probably serving until early July or early January. So mark those down in our mystery as we're trying to figure out when all these things are happening. Now the historian and the Bible student geek in me loves this kind of stuff. And some of you do as well. But when we're diving into this, here is what the human in me wonders in this story with what we've been introduced so far. What's it like to go into the temple and, and, represent God's people to God, and twice a year actually literally go into the temple to serve and to beg God for a child for year after year after year. And now decade after decade, and all you get is silence. What's that like? It's bad enough, you can imagine it's bad enough when we pray. It's bad enough when we come up to the altar and pray something week after week after week and it doesn't happen. But what's it like when you're literally one of the people serving in God's temple and you're praying for something and it doesn't happen? How long had he been praying for this child? 30 plus years at this point? How many times had he prayed to God in the temple, much less in his home every night? Coming home or waking up, listening to his wife's tears every month when she learned that she wasn't pregnant again? We actually, this is, this is such a heavy burden for people. We have a life group here at the church um, in our list of life groups that we have out there, um, different opportunities for people to gather together. And one of them is actually um, called Waiting in Hope. Um, they meet every other Tuesday to, to really come alongside and pray together and continue to hope together as they're waiting for issues that have to do with infertility and stuff. How do we not give up on this? Hope is our theme this morning. How do we not give up on hope? Um, one of my friends on social media who's an atheist, um, and as is typical, she posts more often about God than I do, um, though I'm a professional Christian. Um, uh, it's been, she, she posted, I don't think it's a sign in her yard, I think she was like just sharing it more like a meme, but there's a sign in someone's yard that says it's a, looks like a Christmas sign, and what it says is, it's been 2,000 years, he's not coming back. That's what it says. Now, I don't know if she was ever a believer, but if she was, you can see what happened. She gave up hoping. She gave up on her hope that this was going to happen. Had Zechariah given up on his hope? I think so. I think his response indicates it. We're going to get there. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense of all of the descendants of Abijah. Zechariah is chosen and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense so it's his turn to burn incense which represent the very prayers of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel have gathered to pray and you wonder what were his prayers had he given up on praying for a child at this point I think probably it was probably he considered it too late maybe he was praying instead that the people would be free from Rome Maybe he prayed that the Messiah would come, which was certainly something they were praying. Maybe he was praying um, for something else in particular about Israel, but but I think, among other things, he was praying that finally, Lord, send the prophet, send the prophesied Elijah to come and prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Please send, please fulfill this promise that you made. There had been a final month probably years ago when he had stopped asking for a child. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe his faith is stronger than I can imagine. Though his, his answer, his response here in a minute makes me dubious. But he, he lights the incense. The fa- fragrant smoke begins to rise. The people are coming forward to pray for freedom, to pray for God to fulfill his promises to them. And all of a sudden, as the smoke is filling the temple, he's no longer alone. That's an amazing, terrifying experience suddenly there's someone with him in there. Verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Johanan. Your prayers have been heard. Could you put the picture up this is one artist rendering of this whatever your imagination is again if your tendency maybe you've been raised such a way that you picture angels as you know being pretty little things on the top of the tree or like a little cherub, a little baby with a diaper and wings or something like don't don't picture that this is probably closer something overwhelming something terrifying something with multiple wings maybe multiple eyes whatever the experience here is but all of a sudden, standing to the right, and, and no one knows exactly, it's very clear in Luke, it's to the right. No one knows exactly why to the right makes sense over by the menorah, between the menorah, probably, and the, although we don't even know if it's the, by the way, we actually don't even know for sure if it's Zechariah's right. Or the angel's right that he's standing on. So it's still, we're still confused here. But here he is suddenly standing there in the midst of the smoke rising up from the incense. There's suddenly an angel standing there. And he tells him, your prayers have been heard. And you've got to imagine Zechariah going like, what? What had I just been praying? What was exactly was I? Is it the one that I haven't prayed in years? Is it the one that I gave up on a long time ago? Is it some insane miracle that I was just praying for? Was it, was it for the Messiah? Was it for the prophet to come? You, you The one, the Holy Spirit has been praying for you, Zechariah, because you've been too weak in your faith to pray it. You're going to have a son, and his name will be Yohanan. In the Hebrew, Yohanan. Yah, meaning for Yahweh, the Lord. Khanan, which means mercy or grace. It's a way of saying, Lord, have mercy. Or a way of saying, because this is Hebrew, the Lord has mercy. In fact, as we've talked about Hebrew, the Hebrew language that each word does a lot of work. And so it can also mean this word, Hanan, can mean begged. It can mean begged of Yahweh. Do you think that's what maybe Zechariah heard? Was his name will be called the one who you begged Yahweh for? By the way, since it's Hebrew, and our brains don't do this, but theirs do, it actually means all of those at the same time. The one for whom you begged Yahweh, and the grace that Yahweh has poured out on you, and the mercy that Yahweh has on you, it means all of those simultaneously. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Remind you of anybody? like Samuel. Here we have the next Samuel. This is exactly who John is, who Yohanan is, as he is the new Samuel. In fact, he's the new Samuel. He's the new Elijah. He's the new prophet. He's the new teacher of God's people. He's the new judge. He's going to play all of these roles just like Samuel did, just like Elijah did. He's going to live his entire life as a Nazarite vow. So again, we always do this wrong. They even get it wrong often in movies and stuff like that. When we see a 30-something-year-old John interacting with Jesus, we should be showing him with massive locks of hair because he's never cut his hair, probably never shaved his beard. He should, he should be you know, some kind of mountain of hair stacked on top of his head um, for us to picture that. He's going to live the entire life with the Nazarite vow. The Holy Spirit, at this stage, you want to go, did, did, did Zechariah wonder, like, what is the Holy Spirit? Spirit, exactly. I've heard of God's Spirit. I've heard of the Spirit of the Lord, but what is this term, the Holy Spirit? Maybe he just zips past it. He will not only be a blessing to you, but the rest of the world. 2,000 years now, people are still going to be talking about this son of yours. By the way, I've got a note. Just take one second and do this. Note that in this passage, John the Baptist does not become John the Baptist when he's born, he is John the Baptist from the moment he is conceived. In fact, the plan put in place for him is before he is conceived. We don't suddenly become ourselves when we're born. We are ourselves from the moment of our conception. He is like Samuel. He is like Elijah. He has a job to do. And that job is his job as who he is from the moment of his conception and before. Verse 16, here's his job. Ready for his job description? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That word turn is important here. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to, here's the three to turn the hearts of the fathers, their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. There are three Zechariah. There are three repentances coming that your son is going to initiate for the people of God, for God's people, three repentances. I had a couple of thoughts that jumped out at me as soon as I read this one was, boy, we could use him now. Couldn't we? We need a John the Baptist now. We need someone to step up and say, we've got him. He's right here in our word, by the way. But, but to step up and say, hey, it's time. Let's repent. Let's return. It also struck me that the angel is just telling this man, hey, I'm going to return the hearts of fathers to their children. And he's got to be thinking, I don't know what that's like. I don't have any children. This feels a little tone deaf on Gabriel's part to me, like, Let's not be talking about that to the poor man who's been waiting for decades for a child. And now you're going to start talking about returning your hearts. I've never gotten a chance to put my heart with my children the first time, much less return to them. But in the midst of this, men, fathers in particular, let's take a moment and and just look at this. Think about this. This amazing, over the top, crazy prophesied thing that God has said he's going to do for all of this time is now finally going to happen finally God himself, the snake crusher is coming. The one who's been prophesied is coming. The scepter of Judah is coming. (coughs) The lion, the lamb, he's coming. And you know how this starts? It starts with men returning their hearts to their families. It's not with a flaming sign in the sky. It's not with a blood moon. It's not with pickets. It's with fathers' hearts returning to their children. It's with us as men looking back and focusing. Because the truth is, the thing that, that God starts with is the family here. To turn the hearts of fathers. The first repentance that's going to happen for the coming Messiah is the repentance of fathers returning To their children. Can we let that sink in for a minute, dads? Just let that sink in. Apparently, our role is super important. In fact, if you will, let's pray. God, I'm asking for revival. Um, I'm asking for the revival that apparently sometimes begins with the repentance of fathers. With the repentance of husbands. Not, in the de- not that we become more demanding, not that we- but that we become servants to our families again. It's so easy, Lord, for us as men to be drawn away from our families. There's so many accolades out there. There's so much approval and appreciation out there away from our families where people who don't have to live with us day to day can just tell us how great we are. Father, it's, it's, it's so easy for people to be drawn, for us as men to be drawn away to other things, the temptations in life, to look for something outside of that. And Lord, I am humbled by the thought that your coming, your son coming to earth, the first repentance in the midst of that was fathers returning to their children, was men looking back and focusing their attention back in their home. God, I pray for that revival to begin in our country, that you would return the hearts of fathers and husbands to their homes in a whole new way. Lord, humble us, break us if it's necessary. Return our hearts to your home that you've created for us. And we ask these things according to your great power and your Holy Spirit and your son's name. Amen. To prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord, to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wise and the just and return the heart of fathers to their home. Zechariah. You can imagine what he's supposed to be thinking right now is, wait, the Messiah's coming. Wait. Wait, you're saying the fulfillment of all these prophecies is happening? Wait, wait, uh, uh, you you are fulfilling the, the Son of Man is finally coming? This is finally happening? But do you want to hear one of the most human responses ever? Because one of the reasons I'm a Christian and trust the Bible is because human beings act like human beings in the Bible. I've read the other holy books, they come across like fictional characters. This is the real thing. Zechariah's response is essentially to say, I stopped listening when you said, Son... I've not heard another thing you've said. Wait a minute. Are you saying I'm going to be a dad? Wait, was that a literal thing? Like you could, he's going like, wait, now here's what I love. Zechariah says to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Clearly he's implying we're past the childbearing years. This makes no sense. Now notice, Zechariah is not dumb. Zechariah knows that if this is true in a few months, he's going to know it, Right? Zechariah is not asking for proof that he's going to have a son he's asking for proof that he should hope that he's going to have a son that's what he's asking for don't set me up angel I've believed before I've hoped before I've thought it was going to happen before I've gotten that feeling in my heart that something awesome was going to happen before, and it didn't, and it didn't, and it didn't, and I can't tolerate waiting two or three months until I find out if this is true. You tell me now. Give me a sign now to prove it to me. I've trusted you before, and it hasn't gone well. This is as human a response. I love the fact that Zechariah is standing before Gabriel. Gabriel, who's going to have a point to make about this, by the way, next week. Gabriel, standing before Gabriel, says, Really? I don't know if I believe you. Honestly, anyone who has has the courage enough to keep hoping after the evidence says we should stop hoping can identify with this. Don't give an old man's heart new hope. As we see in the Proverbs, deferred hope leads to a broken heart. And Zechariah's heart, I think, is so crushed, he's not heard anything about the Messiah since he heard the alleged promise that he's going to have a son. It's doubting the angel. I don't know, apparently. But what he's saying is, I've been begging for this for you from years. Why should I trust you now? Gabriel, by the way, has an excellent response that we'll get to next week. We'll unpack more. Gabriel is going to set up an opportunity for, for Zechariah to experience the discipline of the Lord. But it's a cool thing that he sets up. What he's doing is essentially saying, you know what? The next words out of your mouth are going to be this phrase. His name is John. I've decided I want that to be the next thing you say, Zechariah. Unfortunately for you, y'all don't name your children until eight days after they're born. And John isn't even conceived yet. So get used to silence. Silence. John is going to be the voice crying in the wilderness, and yet for the first, during the whole time he's in his mother's womb, he will not hear his father's voice. That's an amazing picture. The human race have been waiting since the garden for someone to crush the head of the serpent. The human race has been waiting since the blessing of Abraham for the scepter of Judah, since Daniel for the son of man to arise, since Isaiah for the prince of peace. And I could give a thousand other examples they have been waiting for so long. That was the name of our Advent series just two years ago. We've been waiting so long. They knew always to be listening. Behold, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God They knew to be listening, but as a race, I think they had given up reason to hope. They had no reason to hope. They'd been subjugated by one country after another now for generations. Sin was running rampant in their culture. Division was everywhere. There were hard-line divisions in Israel, and everyone had to pick a side. And the minute you picked a side, four out of every five people now hated you. And only people who liked you were the one part you picked. It It was a horrible time to be alive in Israel. Every town seemed to have its own openly demon-possessed people. Every time Jesus walks into a town, the people who show up are like, oh, yep, that's, the home, that's homeboy, he's, a, he's possessed. You know what, that's, we're all used to it. He always, and the temple was essentially run by the mafia at this point. So here's the question for us today. As we light this candle, I almost forgot. As we light this candle, the candle of hope, What have we been hoping for? What have we been hoping for? And maybe more importantly, what have we given up hope hoping for? Now, listen, I'm a pragmatic person. You may not get what you're hoping for. We have to make decisions based on the way things are a lot of times. But that doesn't have to cancel out that we're allowed to hope. We're allowed to hope for impossible things. It may not happen, but we're allowed to hope. We're allowed to ask. We're even allowed to beg. Again, it's been amazing that the things we see people who we've been praying for to know the Lord year after year after year, it's, we prayed so long for Ginger's grandmother that when we pray together, I'm almost tempted to like my voice just kind of automatically goes into that prayer again, even though she became a believer before she died years ago. And yet we prayed for so long and it was, it was impossible. It was never going to happen. And then it did. What are we praying for? What are we asking for? What are we begging for that we've given up hope on? Act according to what is, of course. Be wise. But ask according to your hope and don't ever give up. If you don't know this God of hope, what we sang about and read about this morning, if nothing else, if hope on earth, if our hopes on earth are dashed every time, if we're never going to be well, if we're never going to be okay, if our family member is never going to know the Lord, that is something that we can can continue to hope for and beg for and pray for and ask for, and at the same time recognize there's only so much we can do. The good news is, We have a hope that is eternal, that's beyond all the other hopes, that transcends all the other hopes. And that eternal hope was purchased for us by this, the little boy who we're going to meet next chapter. After Advent, actually. So, um, I'm excited for us to get to unpack this together. I hope if you've never put your, my hope, quite literally, is that if you've never put your hope in this person of Jesus Christ, who came and lived as sinless life and died and was resurrected and rose from the grave, it is my hope that you would let today be the day of salvation, that you would put your faith in Him. If you will, stand. I'm going to read two passages to you. One unpacks this idea of hope from Romans chapter 8. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, meaning the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that's seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all those who love God, all the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Whatever the hope is that you've been holding on to, if you need to come up here and pray Or if you've quit coming up here and praying and you need to just start back up and come up here and pray and continue praying. Or if you want to go over in the corner and pray with someone there or with me or someone up here. Or if you want to come and put your faith in Christ, we'd love to talk to you about that. Or if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, you can do that Um, And during this time of invitation. um, I want you to be considering, listening, see what Spirit says to you when it comes to hoping for the things that only He can provide. I want to read the next passage in preparation for next week. And then we'll have our invitation time. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had, been, he had seen a vision in the temple And he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Was he fulfilling and living out the new hope that he had? I think he was, as we'll see.